We have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to praise him for. Even we are going through times of trials and times of tribulations and things we don't understand. We go through those so that we can grow closer to him and put our faith in him. And we are so thankful for all that he has given us. There are many needs that we have within the body that we gather today. We have those that have lost loved ones. We have those that rejoice, that have rejoiced in the birth as we rejoice, Janine and I, in the birth of a grandniece that brings life. We have those that are here this morning, Lord, that have physical needs. I think of my brother Dean. I think of my brother Jimmy. There are so many. We just don't know sometimes what each day will bring. But the one thing that we do know is he is always with us. He is always there. He is always at our side. Today, we came here to be still. There isn't anything that I can add or anything that I can say that can surpass the love that our God has given us through his son, Lord, who died on the cross for us. So, Lord, so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could have eternal life with him. We read, Lord, in Psalm 46, it was written for his people, Lord, for his, for his children, Lord. We read that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam through mountains tremble as it's swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. But the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our strength. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wise, excuse me, he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. But be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Those words were written many years ago, Lord, but they're so true today. Lord, your word is true today and tomorrow and forever. We are so grateful, Lord, that you, Lord, have chosen us. And Lord, my prayer this morning, Lord, is for our, our church, Lord, for our state, for our country, Lord. There are so many needs, Lord, for this world, Lord, that is so lost. And Lord, I pray that on this Mission Sunday that we have a mission emphasis, Lord, that those that have been sent out and have answered the call, Lord, will be able to reach somebody today to bring the light of Jesus to them, Lord, that they will trust in you and have eternal life, Lord. Lord, as those that have lost loved ones, Lord, my prayer is that they rejoice in knowing that one that's departed life on this earth has eternal life with you. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today that does not know you, Lord, Lord, that their hearts will be pricked, Lord, through the message that our pastor will bring 
and that they will seek you, Lord, and that they will accept you as their Lord and Savior. I pray and ask that in your holy name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. Thank you. If you're, if you're having the Pew Bibles there and uh, able to read them together, you can see that it's on page uh, 1207. Uh, as we begin, I always want to draw your attention to the word cloud uh, that should be up there behind me, which tells us about uh, why we are here. Uh, we've come to meet with God. If you look there, worship cherishing is so important. We value coming into the presence of God. Uh, there's a lot of folks who try to define worship in different ways with different terminologies. But uh, worship, I have always tried to keep it as simple as possible. It's an encounter with the living and true God. If you haven't met God, then have you worshipped? And the answer is no. Uh, you, might, you might have come up with alternatives and substitutes, and you might go through religious forms, and you might have liturgies and those things. But worship only takes place when you meet with God, when you see his worthiness, or as the Hebrew word talks about, his heaviness. There is no one like God. And so as we come to meet him today, I pray that you will be able to look more full in his wonderful face, and that the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of that glory and grace. Uh, as we're looking there, you can see that we're in the book of Romans. And uh, for those of you that are following along, uh, from week to week, you're going to see that we're starting uh, in an unusual way. We're starting from the back of Romans and moving forwards. And uh, as we're um, focusing on that, as I said, the word cloud reminds us that we're Bible-believing. So just because we start in the chapter 16 of Romans, it doesn't mean we're less Bible-believing. Uh, what I'm trying to do in this series is to help you to see the whole book rather than just see incremental steps. Uh, my phrase that I like to use is the helicopter view to be able to grasp the whole concept. Uh, when the Apostle Paul wrote this, he wrote this as one piece of literature to the people that were in Rome. But when we usually study the book of Romans, we read a portion a little section, a favorite verse, or a little phrase. I mean, all of us have our favorite phrases. You know, I, I think uh, going back to the Reformation, Martin Luther was one that picked out one in chapter 1, verse 17, where he said, the just shall live by faith, which, which was quoted from Habakkuk back in chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, but when you realize that the just shall live by faith is a phrase that was treasured, but it's in the book of Romans. So let us now reverently attend to the public reading of this book of Romans. Uh, let us, uh, as we look there, I want to be, begin uh, at chapter 15. We're going to be looking at the first 13 verses, uh, first 13 verses of chapter, 13, of chapter uh, 15. <clears throat> if you're not as familiar with these, most people do not cherish chapter 15 quite as loudly as they do some of the others. Uh, but we, I pray that you might come to enjoy this particular text. Uh, the, the Bible verse begins, this is the inerrant, inspired, infallible word as given in the originals. This is the Apostle Paul writing to believers that were in a city called Rome. It was a capital city. It was with the elite, with the educational institutions. Uh, this is where a lot of the power base lived. Uh, but he begins in chapter 15 with these words. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, Therefore... Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ 
He became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And verse 9, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And verse 10, and again it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, in verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, uh, he says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. May the Lord add the blessing to the reading of the word. Faith comes by hearing the word. Now, as I often have said when we hear the text read, uh, did you understand any of that? Did it, uh, did it bring a smile to your face? Did it just fill your cup to overflowing? You know, that's why Romans chapter 15 may not be your favorite passage. But I want you to know there's a lot of good stuff in there that most of the time it's like gold that's never been mined. It's all there, but you may not have ever grasped it. Now, we're, we're uh, at chapter, if, if you'll go ahead and start with me, I'm, I bring my Bible around, and I wanted to show you that from chapter 16 all the way up to chapter 1, it's not that many pages. When you look at the whole Bible, you can see that the book of Romans is pretty small. 16 chapters, right? And uh, within these 16 chapters, though, there are so many, so many powerful texts. In fact, some have said that it is the most elite epistle, uh, that it, it, is, it is a doctrinal masterpiece. You know, as I've said before, some pastors have preached through this uh, for years and years. And what we're doing today is not going to take that long. Uh, but I do want you to be able to treasure what's in chapter 15 uh, instead of just glossing over it. Because, like I said, almost all of us have our favorite verses. So, what is this text all about? And uh, how are we supposed to grasp it? So, uh, in order to get that uh, introduction laid out, I just want to give you a bigger picture of the book of Romans. So, Romans is only 16 chapters. It was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was probably in the city of Corinth at the time that he wrote this. Now, if you think about it, Paul has not been to Rome yet. So, whenever I mention Italy, he's not been over to Italy. So when he writes this 16-chapter epistle, he is writing it to people that he has not been able to visit personally. Although when you're in chapter 16, you heard from the 33 names, uh, he knew all those 33 names. You know, uh, six of them were with him, and the, 30, and the 27 were, were the ones that were in the city that he's writing to. How did he get to know those 27? Well, they had obviously been under his ministry before. And if you think back in those days, and, and, the, and our brother Dave just opened in prayer a moment ago, and we were thinking about troubled times. Well, if you look back into these uh, first century, uh, basically this was probably written about A.D. 57, uh, right, right um, about uh, rough numbers, about 25, 30 years after Jesus died, was buried, and then rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, the Apostle Paul is now writing to people 25 years later. Is it the best of times or the worst of times? Hmm. Do you think they had it better than we do? Did they have it worse than we do? Did they have a big government that had overreach? Did they have taxes that were a little excessive? Did the government respond to your uh, representation? Uh, I hear some of you recognize those parallels. Okay. They were living in the time when they had the Roman Republic, and, uh, and, and to quote this other guy, that when the American Republic was put together, uh, you have a republic if you can keep it. Uh, a lot of times we can't keep it because of the, uh, of the nature of people. Evil corrupts and absolute corrupts absolutely. You know, so what you end up finding is that uh, in, the, in Rome, there are a lot of people who are fairly smart, but there's no churches being built. There's none of that going on. You know why churches haven't been built yet? The Vatican hasn't been purchased yet. 
The, the Sistine Chapel hasn't been painted yet. Yeah, because back in these days, if you were a Christian, you were considered an alien, an outsider. And the way they tried to distinguish whether you were a uh, part, of, part of the Roman Empire or whether you were an outsider is not by the, it wasn't a mandate to see whether you got a shot record or not. It wasn't because you were wearing a mask or not. It was whether you could utter these words, who is Lord? And you would either say, Caesar is Lord, or you would be labeled as an outsider. Now, one of the things we do at New Covenant when we're finished uh, the worship service, I always encourage you to know the right answer. Jesus is Lord. Okay, And when you grasp that, this is what they were struggling with. Uh, to say Jesus is Lord when you were dealing with the Roman government was not so easy. In fact, one of the great persecutions that was just on the horizon that the Apostle Paul had to deal with was with the, the Emperor Nero. Nero did not like Christians. He was not friendly towards them, and you would have not gotten a fair hearing if you went to any of their judicial procedures. You remember uh, the, uh, the, the beautiful Roman Colosseum. Those of you that have been to Rome, everybody has to see that. Well, what was the biggest sport in the Roman Colosseum? Well, I don't know if, it was, if killing Christians was the biggest sport, but that was one of the big sports. You know, if you ever watch the movie Gladiator, uh, you get a sense of, of people that were out there for show, to be a spectator. Uh, but it was really sad when, when they would actually put people out on the court or on the field in order to be killed simply because they said Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar is Lord. Now, having laid that foundation, let's look quickly at the book of Romans. Uh, the 16 chapters, those, as I said to you before, the key theme throughout the book of Romans is righteousness. And I'll be touching on this next week because it's Reformation Sunday. And Reformation is at the, uh, excuse me, the, the, uh, the righteousness is at the heart of justification. And that's really what we push and press and, and proclaim during the Reformation Sunday. We really want you to understand justification, adoption, and sanctification. And all the benefits that flow from this wonderful, amazing salvation that God has pr provided. But in chapter 1, and I'll just quickly review this for you. Uh, when the Apostle Paul writes to these people in Rome to the, uh, to, the, to the 27 plus, okay, the 27 people that he knows, some, there's some more people because they're meeting in some of the houses. As I said, they haven't built buildings yet because they're under persecution and the building of churches don't, doesn't take place until the 300s. That was after the new emperor came into place called Constantine and his mother had an influence and she said, hey, let's build some churches. Let's build some special uh, uh, buildings to be able to mark certain locations. And that's when you get church buildings starting to form uh, a lot of different places. Uh, and it was, it was allowable by the government by that time. But uh, in chapter 1, Paul introduces the whole epistle to them by saying, Hey, it's me. I'm Paul. Those of you that are in Rome, hey, it's me. And I'm an apostle. God has called me to this calling. And you can read all about his, his call uh, in Acts chapter 9. But in, in Romans chapter 1, he goes on to continue uh, that, that he says, I love the gospel. In fact, if you're looking at chapter 1, verses 16, 17, and 18, it's quite interesting where he says, uh, I, I'm ready to preach the gospel. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, even, to the Jew first and even to the Gentile. Now, that's in chapter 1. The Apostle Paul says, hey, I'm the Apostle, and I love that gospel message. It is so neat. He says, I'm not ashamed of it. He doesn't cower. He doesn't hide. He doesn't wear some disguise. Right from the beginning, Paul says, I love it. I love the gospel. And, uh, and he says, it's not only for the, the Jewish community, the ones that grew up with church, the ones that grew up with the Bible, but it's also for those who, are, who didn't grow up with it. The other ethnics. Now that's what he says in verse 16. So then in verse 17, that famous verse that Luther, Martin Luther picked up, he said, For in it, for in the in the in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written in Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. Now, once you get that, wow, he's basically saying the gospel is connected to righteousness. And so you have this righteous God. And that is who we want to have a relationship with. 
We want to enter into a beautiful relationship with the righteous God, the God who does no wrong, the God who is altogether lovely, altogether beautiful. There is no even speck of error. There's no variable of change. As the catechism puts it, uh, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and in his being are wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. That's who Paul's introducing at the beginning of chapter 1. Now, verse 18 tells us that that great God, uh, it says, for the wrath of this great God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, that's the sad part. It's immediately after he tells us, I want, I want you to know there's good news, and it's about a great God who's perfect. He's righteous, but he's angry at your sin. And then he goes on for a couple chapters to tell us how we're all unrighteous. Uh, who is righteous? You know, the scripture says in Hebrew, or Romans 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. So once you got that, then at the end of chapter 3 is the shift. And this is the good news about the book of Romans. He says, but, verse 24, 25, and 26, he says, but, the righteous, but there is a righteousness that's apart from your performance. A righteousness that is not by law keeping. It is an imputed righteousness. And in chapter 4, he says, let me tell you, there's this guy named Abraham. Have you heard of Abraham? Well, even the people in Rome had heard of Abraham. Abraham, I mean, he's famous. A a Abraham, there's not many like him, a friend of God. Abraham got that imputed righteousness. And then you have the explanation of how when God gives you this new status of being part of the family of God, the covenant community, then your life is different. He explains the doctrines, quite a few, and then in chapters uh, 9, 10, and 11, he tells us a little bit more about God and about how God works things together, how he's sovereign and how he elects and how he chooses and how he m makes things come to pass. We, we may sometimes feel uncomfortable with that, but in chapter 8, we all like where it says that we know that he works all things together for the good. How can he work it all together for good if he's not sovereign? if he doesn't bring it to pass. Now, that's the beautiful thing. Now, in chapter 12, there's a shift here that takes place, or uh, uh, instead of being focused on all the truths and the doctrines and the way that the apostle was, uh, was emoting, how he was concerned for his countrymen who didn't quite get the righteousness, they tried to have their own, and it wasn't good enough. Then he says in chapter 12, he says, I beg of you, brothers, everybody that's in Rome, I beg of you, this is my heart's desire that by God's mercy you would be able to present your life, your body, you as a sacrifice, holy, that's righteous, set apart to God and acceptable to God. And this is simply reasonable in light of this great salvation that he's given. That's chapter 12. Now, when you get finally to the end, that's from chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and then 16. The Apostle Paul wraps things up in chapter 16 where he says, To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Now, after he has finished everything, you can almost hear him breathe a sigh of relief. Man, this was my magnum opus. This was a big, big thing that the Holy Spirit had worked with him to be able to have this written with an amanuensis, with a secretary that we learned about in chapter 16. But at the end, he says, it's all about God. Remember how we started with God, who is righteous? And we end with God, who is wise, and he is the only one who should receive glory. That's why that little sign behind me, uh, the sola scriptura, sola deo, sola, all of those solas, all, they mean only by Christ, only through scripture, only by faith, only by grace, so that it's all to the glory of God alone. You find that in the book of Romans. Now, having given you this quick overview, I want to just quickly back up, and your bulletin card is in front of you. You could take it to be able to follow along. But in the bulletin card, you can see that at the end, there's this great doxology, that great doxology, which is, uh, I got one right here. The great doxology is to say, hey, God is alone wise. You can see it there. Before that, though, he had taken the rest of chapter 16 and said there was a great contrast. There are people that follow Christ and there are people who don't. 
the big list of 33 people that do follow Christ, but they, you need to be careful of those who don't follow Christ. In fact, in verse 17, he says, be careful. He warns you because their God is their appetite. They, they desire something more than Christ. They have alternatives. And I want to caution you today as I review all of this, is that even in 2021, there are a lot of voices out there whose God is their appetite. They have an appetite for power, they have an appetite for pleasure, they have an appetite for control, and they have an appetite for comfort and popularity. See, all of these things are, are the voices that are out there that are not submitting to Christ. You see, because if you take Jesus' words, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all will be added. Now, having laid that foundation, you realize that the great contrast is that there are believers and there are not. And if you back it up to uh, chapter 15, where we are, there are two things that we discovered. At the end of chapter 15, the Apostle Paul felt it necessary to say, hey, God is taking care of you. He's giving you some pastoral shepherding. And if you look at the end of chapter 15, he says, I'm doing my best. I want to come visit you. I want to help you because everybody is in need. Uh, and at the end, he gives this great quote in verse 33, 31, 32, and 33. He says, um, uh, now may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. He has, he has finished up some of his thoughts to say amen again. But it's beginning to expose that there is a problem in the church in Rome. And that's what I'm going to be explaining to you. Paul finishes the whole issues with the problems in Rome when he, says, when he says, I want you to be at peace. I want all of you to be at peace. And as a pastor, my goal is to be there, to help you, to comfort you, to teach you, to, uh, to do those kind of things. And you can read about that in his itinerary, but you can feel it in his intensity. Now, if you back up a little bit further now to our text today at the beginning of chapter 15, uh, Paul is dealing with part of the core issue. He's dealing with what, what I end up calling and what we have in the, in the text there. Uh, it is the great struggle. Whew. They're in Rome in a culture that is not friendly. And they try to get along with people that are worshiping with them. And guess what? They're having troubles. Now, I know this is news to people even in 2021. Church people were having trouble with church people. And... It really shouldn't be any surprise because if you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter, it has 16 chapters as well. Uh, there's a lot of controversy and troubles going on in that church too, which is why that book is bigger than usual and why they got a second book as well, 1 and 2 Corinthians. Now, Rome only got one, uh, one book, but there was some issues going on in application. So that's why I want to explain to you uh, that as you follow along on the fourth point, uh, I use, I'm just basically letting you know that first I want to look at the mess noticed by God within the community of believers. Secondly, I want to look at the means provided by God to address the messy situation. And third, we're going to look at the measure expressed by God as the desired stasis of the Christian community. What's it supposed to look like? Uh, what, is, is, it, is it unrealistic or is it realistic? Uh, that's what I want to tackle. So if you have your Bibles open, follow along with me, if you will. The first we find out there is a mess. When you read this particular text, uh, the Apostle Paul, let me read it for you a little quicker with a little adaptation. In chapter 15, verse 1, he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So in chapter 15, he already is confessing that there's some problems there. You know, there's a mess there. Can you see it? Uh, there's an obligation that's not having been met yet. Uh, there's some people who are focused on other things than what they should be focused on. And uh, he ends up giving them some counsel uh, as a result. But that's the first thing you want to realize, that this was not heaven. It was a mess. Now, if, if, uh, if you're inviting your family members or your neighbors to come to church and expect that you're going to be in heaven, you're deceiving them. We're not in heaven till we're in heaven. The book of 1 Corinthians tells us that we have to wait for that trumpet blast to sound. And when the, when the dead in Christ will be raised, then we'll be caught up together with them. And uh, the Bible says there we, we will be changed. And it's not talking about diapers. It's talking about our, our body, our sin nature is going to be removed. And there's not going to be any need for a tear duct in your body. I don't even know if any of you are going to need uh, the hair and all the accessories. Because when we're in the presence of God from that point on, 
there's not going to be this mess anymore. But if you've had the illusion that being in church is going to be the perfect place, I just, I'm sorry, I'm going to break that bubble. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us that on earth that we will have that perfect communion, that we will get along with everybody. And that's why when we look here, he says there's an obligation that needs to be met. We can do it better than we often do. And that's the reason is because we often are pleasing ourselves rather than doing what needs to be done. So if you're following along, uh, uh, the, the, uh, there's five things that are, that are uh, missing that make this a mess. The first is there's a lack of harmony. Second, there is a lack of hope. Third, there's a lack of peace. And then there's a fourth, a lack of corporate identity. And fifth, there is dissonance. Uh, I want, I'll summarize that up with the, with the fifth, with the dissonance. But let me explain it first. Uh, when you're looking at the biblical text here, it says that there should be harmony. Verse 5, follow along with me there. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another. Why would he write this text? It's because there was disharmony. There, was, there wasn't the beautiful... Uh, Notes coming together. It didn't sound all the way it's wonderful. Like, we're going to have a cantata for Christmas. And uh, when we get the altos, tenors, basses, and sopranos all together, they'll be on some kind of risers. Uh, what's really neat is when we blend. It's, uh, it's not really neat when we don't. Now, uh, there's a sense in which that is what harmony is. And I want to be able to say that first, there was a lack of harmony. In the particular text, he writes here, uh, and, the, and the Greek word, uh, it says to think and to have a mindset and to be minded. Uh, it, is, it is quite interesting there that people are not thinking alike. In the church at Rome, they're just not all on the same wavelength. It's almost like if you've got a, the old radios. You remember you have radios when you have to turn the dial to zoom in on a station. Uh, some of you remember that. Okay. <laughs> but if you didn't have it quite right, then you'd get the static and everything else, and you always try to tune it in exactly. Uh, well, in this particular case, things were not tuned in. There was extra static that would come. There was, there was uh, competing messages and everything else. So the first thing you realize is that they were not in harmony. They were not all thinking alike. They, they, uh, they did not follow uh, the Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. They, they seem to have um, uh, extra things on their mind. Second thing that you find in this text is peace is missing. And the reason I jump right to that is that in verse 33, uh, I already read it to you. The Apostle Paul was summarizing this whole chapter 15 by saying, guys, I want you all to have the peace. You don't have it yet because you're not in harmony. You're not thinking in accord. Now, if you go a little further, you're going to say uh, uh, it, there's, there's also the problem in verse 1. Let me explain it. He says, there are those, those who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please themselves. So this, this, uh, this fourth reality is that people were focused more on themselves there was a self-centeredness. There was an awareness of what you wanted, but not an awareness of what others needed. And that's why he says, hey, guys, I want, you to take, I want you to get a higher helicopter view of faith so you can see what is the need. He says in that verse 1, he says, there's failings of the weak. There's failings of the weak. Now, having said that, I'm not wanting to dwell all, all of our sermon time on how bad things are because you already know what it's like. Okay? What I want to draw your attention to is the musical terminology that is in the translations in the ESV as well as some of the other translators. They talk about harmony, they talk about one accord, and they talk about one voice. One voice. Now, it's really interesting. What is one voice? Is what we were trying to do when we did the, uh, the Great Commission as a liturgy today. When we all were trying to quote uh, Jesus' words to the disciples when he said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. And we were all supposed to say that with one voice. Unison. Did we do a good job? Did you stumble a little bit? Because if the slide wasn't perfectly, maybe you missed it. Or maybe you're quoting it from what you grew up with rather than what the translation here was. You see, we, we even, even when we have the words right in front of us, we don't always speak with one voice. 
Okay? And then when he talks about the harmony, and then when he talks about the, uh, um, the being in accord. You know, sometimes I, I've, I've often said that uh, it's, it's one thing to have notes that match. Okay, if, if we're all singing Amazing Grace or Holy, 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 it's great when we're singing the same song. Uh, my mom used to always say, it's great if we make a joyful noise. You know, even if it wasn't perfectly in harmony. It's wonderful that we're all singing God's praise and we're all singing the same song. But what happens when we're not singing the same song? If somebody's singing Holy, Holy, Holy and somebody else is singing um, Rock of Ages at the same time and if somebody else is singing something else, it becomes confusing. And so the mess is, is that the people, in, uh, the people in Rome, just like the people in Lewis, we have a mess. We're not always on the same wavelength, and praise God when we actually are. Now, I didn't want to spend all this time here because that's just the mess is being identified. Second, it's the means that God provides. Uh, Paul is writing to these people, and he says, you don't have to stay in this mess forever. Even though it's not going to be perfect here on earth, there's two things that he gives us. He tells us that we ought to be helping and we ought to be welcoming. Helping and welcoming. Now, I'll, I'll, go, I'll show you that in verse 1 and verse 7. In verse 1, he says... Uh, and this is kind of interesting. I, uh, I have it right in front of me here. Uh, he says, I want you to bear. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, that is uh, an admonition for what we can do, the means to try to address the mess that's in the Christian community. The means is you need to bear with to bear up. Have you ever heard that terminology? This is not trying to use that uh, the English word B-E-A-R that has the bear with the claws and the big snout. You know, the, like the giant ones that, that, uh, that are where my, uh, my daughter-in-law is from in Kodiak, Alaska. They're big bears. No, this is not talking about an animal. This is talking about an exercise of helping. If you're going to bear something, it's kind of like uh, if you have to carry something heavy and you come alongside and you help pick up another end to help carry it. Uh, this is, let me give you a good illustration of one coming up after Thanksgiving next month. We're going to uh, be, we're going to be uh, decorating the church for Christmas. Okay? And we're also going to be trying to clear out some of the attic from what I hear. And uh, guess what? How many people should that do? Should that be a one-person job? Okay. If we bear with each other, there's going to be a party going on, and we're going to have folks doing things. And the ones who don't like to climb ladders, guess what? They shouldn't be climbing ladders, but the ones who do can. And so we bear with each other. We come together, and many hands get the job done. And so the, the counsel there is that there is an obligation for us to do this. Now, who's obligated to do this? Okay, when you're making this application, it says those who are strong. Now, this is not talking about whether you haven't used your, your body uh, odor or whatever. It's not talking about uh, those kind of interpersonal things. It's talking about your personal faith. Pastor, how do you know that? If you turn back to chapter 14, verse 1, you see the explanation. Receive the one who is weak in the faith. Okay, do you understand now that when you're in chapter 15, verse 1, then we who are strong ought to bear with the, with the one who is weak. He's still talking about weak in the faith, and hence he's talking about strong in the faith. So this is where it comes in. Are you strong in the faith? Okay, that's a great question. Now, if you're a weightlifter, how will we tell whether you're strong or not? Well, you could brag about how many weights you've lifted, or how many reps you've done, or how much you can press or whatever it is that you're doing. You can use statistics to be able to tell you whether you are uh, making, the, whether you're strong. How do you tell if you're strong in the faith? Hmm. Are you strong in the faith? Do you want to be strong in the faith? Maybe some of you would like to not be strong in the faith so there won't be any obligation for you. I'm off the hook. I'm a weak faith person. I'm one of those people that's weak in faith. If you go around and say, I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm weak. I mean, that is one way of, <laughs> of getting off the hook, so to speak. But that's not what the scripture tells us. 
We're supposed to lay aside every of those elementary principles and we're supposed to press on. Uh, Philippians 3, verse 13, and, and, and uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. We're supposed to move on to maturity. We're supposed to get strong meat and not just taking the baby food. When you read the book of Romans, is it baby food or strong meat? I'm going to tell you there's a lot of meat in Romans. Okay, I'm sorry if you're a vegetarian. I don't mean that to be a negative thing. Okay, I'm trying to use the illustration that there's great protein there. It'll nourish you. It'll strengthen you. And this is what it means to be strong in the faith. You cannot be swerved. You cannot be swayed. You cannot be distracted or knocked off. Uh, you will not, uh, you will be, let me quote Psalm 1. You will not be a sheep that, that goes astray, but you will be a sheep that hears your shepherd's voice. And he will lead you in the path of righteousness. And you will not be wandering around like the Isaiah where it says that all we like sheep have gone astray. No, those who are getting stronger in the faith are not going to keep uh, meandering. We're going to be drawing nearer. For Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they will follow me. John chapter 10. The strong in faith, they're the ones who when they're reading the book of Romans, they, they get it. They understand about the righteousness of God. They understand about the imputation of it because we can't perform it. They understand that, that, that God is going to punish sin, that the wrath of God is poured out upon sin. And so what salvation really is, is not salvation from sin, but salvation from an angry God. Jonathan Edwards got it right when he said, it's a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Okay, having said that, if you are able to grasp the maturity of the faith, if you're growing in the depths and the, and the breadth and, and, the, and the things of the love of God, Romans chapter 8, you can read all of those things that are listed for you. Then he says, brothers and sisters, you have an obligation to work on this mess. You're not free to just say, oh, well, and walk away. There is a call for us to help those who are not yet there those who are new in Christ, those who are babes in Christ. Now, how do you do it? Let me give you an illustration today. Today we had Be Still Sunday, and I'm sure some of you are like, I didn't like it. And I'm sure some of you are saying, man, I couldn't wait for this. We're in the same church. Which one of you are strong in the faith? Is it the ones who wanted to Be Still Sunday, or is it the ones who want to celebrate Sunday? I like your boldness, man. Okay. <laughs> Now, the interesting thing is, can you tell? See, in this particular measurement, uh, which is what I'll get there in a minute, you won't be able to see it quite as clearly. But those of you that are closer to Jesus, I call it a helicopter view. When you're stronger in the faith, you have a greater elevation. You see more of what God sees. In other words, you see God, and you see God's fingerprints on things. You see the beauty of holiness, the ugliness of sin, and you see the value of every soul. When you don't have that elevation, you're ending up on the ground level or you're closer to the ground and you barely see where you've been and you don't see where you're going. You don't really focus on God because you're focused on what's in front of you. And so that's one of the challenges that when you have this maturity of faith, you can see more of what God sees. And when you see that, you see the weaker brother and sister and instead of pushing them away, you want to have an obligation to help them, to bear their burdens, to come alongside and assist them in their covenant nurture. Now, the second part of this uh, means of helping is in verse 7. In verse 7, he uses the word welcome. So it's not only helping, which is to bear up with them, but it's also to welcome. Now, that was an interesting term. When we have our word cloud up there, one of the things we often say is that we're a friendly church which is another way of saying we welcome people. Do you feel welcome when you're here? You know, we have a, a, a plaque on the wall when you come through the middle doors, and on that there's the Ethel Award. Uh, those of you that can remember Ethel, uh, she was... I've never heard anybody say anything negative about Ethel. I mean, it was almost like sanctification had already been kicked in high gear for her. Uh, when you would come to church, Ethel would be able to welcome you with the joy of the Lord. And whether it was a smile or whether it was a handshake, uh, she was not a big lady or anything else, but she made you feel welcome. Are there, do all of us have that ability to make others feel welcome? 
Let's actually read that text, if you will. Uh, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Now, that's one of the issues, one of the means for being able to address the mess in Rome. He says, hey, you need to have a welcoming spirit. And then he says, let me explain welcoming a little bit. He says, when you come to meet with God, does God welcome you or not? Does he make you go through a lot of hoops? Now, in the Old Testament, they had to do a lot of stuff. In order to get into the Holy of Holies, well, no, they couldn't even get into the Holy of Holies. The average person could never get into the actual presence of God. They could only come to the outer court, and they would have to send a priest in who would go in once a year to be able to access God. They had a lot of barriers. There was fences and curtains. They had the table of show, uh, the, the labor where you had to clean. You had the incense. You had all these things in the Old Testament. In order for sinful people to come into the presence of the Holy God, there were a lot of things. But now in Christ, Christ welcomes us. You see, because we have a righteousness now that's not by performance, it's not by doing all those rituals, it's because we have imputed righteousness. We have Christ's righteousness. And now because Christ has welcomed us, because he gave us his righteousness, now we are to extend that kind of same welcoming spirit to others. Pastor, that's hard. That's hard. You can welcome those that you want to welcome, but is it, is it easy to welcome others that you don't like? And that's why when you read that particular text, he says, we have to do it for the glory of God. You don't do it for the glory of man. You don't just do it because it's, it's uh, uh, I think the word would be uh, that it's uh, pragmatic. You know, you can just get along by doing it. We're actually supposed to do it because Christ did it for us. And this brings glory to God because of what he did to change us. Now, let me quote from Romans 12, you know, which explain this. We're doing the Romans in reverse. He's already begged of you that you would present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And this is reasonable because of what he has done for us. So because he's given us his righteousness and because he has befriended us and welcomed us, we are now to welcome those that are in the body of Christ. Even those who are currently having some disharmony, lack of peace, and don't have the hope. Now, that's the second point. So there was two things that we were supposed to deal with, uh, the, the two means whereby we can address the mess. One is that we can bear with one another, and secondly, we can welcome them. And by the way, chapter 16, remember the word salute? Or if you, if you turn to chapter 16, you can see it. Over and over and over, he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila. Then he goes on to the next verse in verse uh, 5. Greet the church that's in their house. Greet my, my friend uh, Apapen, uh, Apenetus. Uh, he says, go ahead and greet Mary and Andronicus and Junia. Uh, he goes on and he lists all these people that you're supposed to greet, 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 greet. This is very similar to the term welcome. Uh, I had to, had to take you here to what does welcome mean? It means to take two, to take an addition to oneself. In other words, get on board. It's almost like if you're driving, you say, come on and, and get in the car with me. It's another one to take as one's companion, almost like being married. Isn't that interesting? Another, another explanation of this is to take one by the hand and to lead them. Like a shepherd would take a, uh, not necessarily, uh, as a parent or as a, a caregiver would take care of a child when you're on the playground. We carry them or have them hand in our hands. Uh, or actually he says to take and to receive one into your home, almost like adoption is to actually bring somebody in and say, you are welcome. What's mine is yours. It's really quite interesting, uh, but the one here, the one definition that, that was most pricking of my heart was the one that says, to grant access to your heart. To, to welcome someone, to give them access to your heart. It's really quite beautiful when you realize it. Now, I told you there's three points to this message. The third one is the measure. The way it can be, the way it should be, the way it, it will be. Okay, and that is, we've looked at this mess in, in, uh, in Rome. That the people are uh, not at peace. They're not in harmony. They're not on the same wavelength. And so now the means is that they need to, to the ones who are spiritual are supposed to come alongside those who are not as spiritual and help them. And they're also supposed to welcome them into their lives and into their hearts. This is hard stuff. But it's because of what Jesus has done. 
If you listen there in the particular text that I have in front, uh, I want to be able to show you. Uh, he says, verse 5 and following, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with each other. He says, this is in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Therefore, he says, that's why you can welcome one another. And then he says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the, un, to the circumcised, and, and this was for the reason to complete the promise given to the patriarchs. But he says, Christ also became a servant in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for extending mercy to them. And then he quotes three of the Old Testament guys. Uh, he, quotes, uh, he, he quotes David, he quotes uh, Moses, and he quotes Isaiah. Now, there's four quotes there. Two of them are attributed to David. Uh, but it's quite interesting there is the, the, the standard is Jesus. The standard is Jesus. When you, you used to wear wristbands and say, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do with the mess that's in the church? Would he just say, ah, I'm going to leave that place and I'm going to find another. I'm going to start a new one. No. Jesus said that he would love us to the end. He would never leave us or forsake us. The fellowship is sweet. And so uh, unless God calls you somewhere else, when he calls you into this communion, there is supposed to be uh, the means being utilized, the means of uh, welcoming and the means of helping. But the standard is Jesus. So he says that you'll get to this hope. And that's where, uh, uh, verse 13, and then I'll back it up for you. May the God of all hope fill you, and then he says, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So just looking at verse 13, you're going to see that there, that there is a hope that we'll get to this. There is a hope that you don't have to feel like the one that's been abandoned, the one that's been left out. And it's quite interesting, he says, the God of hope is the one who is going to have hope abound in you. So it's almost like the rivers of living water are, or when you go beside the uh, Psalm 1 by the still waters, it's almost like you drink in this hope and then that hope flows through you to another. May the God of all hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I just, just the thought of Jesus. He's been spending a lot of time telling us about verse 8, that Christ became a servant. A servant. He was the one that set the example. He was the one, Philippians 2, he had his throne on high and his kingly crown, but he came to the earth for us. He laid aside his glory. He emptied himself and he took on flesh. He even endured the cruel death of the cross. That's the example that's set before us. And that's why these, these quotes from, from David, from Moses, and from, uh, and from uh, Isaiah are so important. Let me just highlight them for you so you can say you've heard them. So to... For, for David said, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. Uh, this is when David was delivered from, from despair, from Saul. And he says, man, I'm still alive. I didn't get killed by the spears from Saul. I didn't get killed in the cave when he was, he was trying to smoke me out. He was trying to get me and destroy my life. And I've been spared. And then he says, in, 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 uh, in there, uh, it's from 2 Samuel 22. He says, I will praise you among the Gentiles. What David is saying, this isn't just good news for the Jews. This is good news for every ethnic other than the Jews. That the gospel is going to have a profound effect on the world. Now, if you look at the words from Deuteronomy, this is Moses uh, writing in Deuteronomy 32, which is towards the very end of Moses' writing. Moses is an old man. Uh, he's up there at 120 years old. And he tells the people, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. In other words, hey, there's going to be one born that's greater than me. There's going to be a prophet that comes into this community that's going to be greater than Moses. And he says, rejoice, O ethnics of the world. And then if you look at Isaiah, which is where he specifically says in chapter 11, verse 1, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. This is where the, the, all the good news about Jesus. There's going to be this one born in, in, in God's timetable. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth this son. 
made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those who are under the curse of the law. It was at that fullness of time that God sent the servant, the one who would come and do the things that nobody wanted to do. If you were a counselor to Jesus, would you have told him to come? Would you have told him to stay in the town of Nazareth for most of his life? Would you have told him to put up with fishermen? To not even have a fancy house or a nice comfortable bed? He didn't even have a Serta mattress. You know, would you have said that this is wise? Jesus came, as Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, he came not to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, when you realize that, when you look at the example of Jesus, when you see what he's done for us, now can you understand chapter 12? I beg of you, brothers, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I plead with you that you live as become a follower of Christ, that you work together with those who are in the body of Christ. That's why in chapter 16, he is so happy to say, there's Andronicus, there's this, there's Mary, there's Priscilla, there's Aquila, and there's even the ones that are with me in Corinth. There's Paul, and there's a couple of, uh, you know, servant number one, servant number two, servant number three. He says, and even Gaius, the guy who owns the house, he lists all these people that he's having fellowship with, that are helping to bear the burden, and who are welcoming one another in Christ, because Christ had welcomed them. Do you know Christ? This has been a Be Still Sunday. If you came to church and it just felt like, hmm, hmm, it shouldn't feel that way. It should be when you come and you're being still, you will know who God is. When you meditate upon the Savior and you'll realize how great a God we have, that regardless of the decisions that are being made in Washington or wherever they're being made, Regardless of the decisions that are being made in Dover or wherever they're being made, regardless of the decisions that are being made in Sussex County or wherever they're being made, we still have a God who sits on the throne. And I want to encourage you that we have been called to not be a mess, but to be a holy habitation. We're to be a royal nation, a priesthood of believers. I want to encourage you, don't stay on the periphery. Don't sit on the outside, but come and be numbered with the covenant community. And within this community, there should be love abounding. And that's why uh, Paul writes this very same message in all the other books that he writes. Let me just quote Galatians chapter 6, where it says, after he had finished most of his work there, we are in Romans 15, but if you go to Galatians 6, which is the last chapter, he says, brothers, if there is trouble going on, um, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially of those within the household of faith. And that comes in right after he started off in chapter 12. If you are spiritual, which parallels with strong faith, those who are spiritual should come alongside those who are not, those who are caught up in sin, and we ought to seek to restore them. And then he goes on in verse 2 of chapter 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law or the pattern of Christ. It's really neat. This stuff is redundant. If you're getting it and it's seasoning to you and it kind of like marinates into you, then you'll realize that to be a part of the body of Christ is a beautiful thing. And yes, all of us are brothers and sisters. I loved it today. I was, uh, not today, but just recently, I was talking to somebody and they said, uh, you know, about, about the relationship you have with a brother. You love them and sometimes you're frustrated by them. Is that true? Or are your family members so perfect that you never have a crossword? That you really want them to stay more than three days? <laughs> right now, I find that folks are barely even able to have a meal together unless they make a deal that they won't talk religion or politics. It's awful. A true brother is a brother through adversity as well as through good times. Let me close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that the, uh, that the Scripture doesn't leave us with a mess. The scripture takes us to the, to the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, when we realize the great benediction at the end where he says, the doxology, he says, to the only wise God, 
the one who is able to take us messy people, and even though we have been imputed righteousness, even though we are children of God and we're heading to heaven, we still have a messed up life. Lord, we still are prone to wonder. We're still prone to lean on our own understanding or even as our text tells us today, we're still prone to do our own thing, to please ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would move us on into that maturity of faith, that you would make us strong believers, that you would give us that helicopter view to be able to see more of what you see. And I pray, O oh Lord, that especially in this communion, in this local body, that we would love one another because Christ has welcomed us into the body of Christ. And because we're in the body, we are many members in the same body. And, O oh Lord, I pray that as it says in, in, he, in Romans chapter 13, that we may have love abound, that we may live at peace, especially with those who are in the household of faith. In Jesus' name I give thanks. Amen.